When Joel Peterson agreed to teach a real estate course at Stanford in the early 1990s, he thought he was just helping out the school for a couple of semesters. More than 25 years later, Joel is still a professor at Stanford and maintains relationships with many of the students he's taught throughout the years. In addition to his teaching duties, Joel also serves as chairman of the board of overseers at the Hoover Institution at Stanford and the chairman of the board at JetBlue Airways. On this episode of Mission Daily, Joel talks about all of that experience as well as how he spots potential in people, what the future of business looks like, why it's important to always be innovating, and much more. Enjoy the conversation. Joel, thank you so much for taking the time. It's uh, an honor to sit down with you here at your offices at Stanford. And uh, for our listeners out there that might not be as familiar with your work, um, if you don't mind, what's your role and uh, what are you up to at Stanford? So I've taught here for about 27 years. I started out teaching a real estate course, and I thought I would just be teaching it for a year to help uh, the school out because they'd lost the guy who was teaching the real estate course, and I was on the advisory board. And uh, I really liked the students. I was amazed at how much I liked them and how interesting teaching was. And I was also amazed at how hard it was. It was way more challenging than I ever thought. So one thing led to another. I taught that course for a number of years. And then I began teaching entrepreneurship and then a leadership course. And then I got involved in teaching first-year students and exec ed. And so one thing has led to another. So over 27 years, I've taught a lot of people, probably 4,000 people. Wow. Yeah. So when you look back at uh, teaching 4,000 people and, you know, we're talking earlier, you have a big family. I would imagine that with that large of a data set, you've seen a lot of patterns, a lot of um, trends and a lot of just uniqueness and surprises. So any, um, you know, stories maybe from the beginning of your teaching that taught you how to be a great leader, great teacher? Well, one of the things I learned early on was uh, to get everybody talking. You know, uh, and so I made up this rule that get every person to make a noise within the first three <laughs> classes. If they do, uh, you got them forever. They'll yeah. continue to participate. If you lose them, if they don't make a noise in the first three classes, you've probably lost them for the Checked whole Checked out for the semester. Another one that I, I, so I always have asked for feedback and I always give feedback. You know, if you, if I ask you for feedback and you tell me something, I process it and I feed it back to you. So you know that I've listened and heard. So one year I asked the students you know, what they would like to see more or less of and everything. And one young woman wrote, more of us, less of you. <laughs> I thought that was perfect. So I fed it Bold. back to him. <laughs> yeah, it was great. <laughs> and when you were teaching that first real estate course, uh, I'm always curious to know, were you already interested in real estate? I mean, I'm sure there was a, a basic interest with, you know, getting a home for your family or vacation home or an investment property. But was this something you were really passionate about? Was it something where you know, you just wanted to try it. What was that uh, thought process like for you? No. So I had, I had been the managing partner of a company called Trammell Crow Company, which was the largest private real estate development company in the world. So, and I'd been in real estate for 18 years. Oh, wow. So, uh, professionally. Yeah. So I'd run a big real estate At the company. highest yeah. levels then. Yeah. yeah. So, that, and that's frankly why I was on the advisory council of the business schools, because sure. I had that position of CEO of that enterprise. And then they just lost the guy who was teaching it. He stepped out for a year and uh, they just said, would you bail us out for a year? What was that experience like translating, you know, your experiences on the front lines of real estate and, you know, real estate financing and everything that's involved with that 
what was that translation process like to get that into curriculum? Did you design all new curriculum? Did you get to fall in on some pretty robust teaching materials? There was some stuff there, but I did a lot of new cases. And then I had projects. I sent people out in the marketplace to analyze real property because that was kind of what I knew how to do. Sure. So I had them make presentations. I used to bring them in on Saturday and make them make presentations. I would film them. I would critique. Their, I mean, I was... I really went overboard, uh, but it was fun. So I love this already that you're, you know, kind of gravitating towards case studies. And I think that's something that GSB is really well known for, which is like the focus on case studies and then getting out and doing and not just uh, talking all the time. Yeah. It's a nice mixture here of both uh, sort of book learning lectures as well as case work. So I went to another business school where it was really uh, all case all the time. And we had to learn accounting by case, the case method. And I just wanted somebody to say, wait a minute, the debits on the left or on the right? <laughs> no, help <Sure>. me. <laughs> so you're, you're teaching the real estate course. And at a certain point you decide that it's time for the next, you know, maybe adventure or the next subject to add to that. Um, how do you make that decision and what did you choose and why? Well, I got asked by a guy who was teaching a really popular course here. His name is Irv Grosbeck, who's a legend here. And he's a wonderful human being. And is really revered and people couldn't get into his course. And so they, the school was pressing him to expand it. So he wanted somebody that got uh, sort of good student grades. Uh, somehow or another, the students evaluate teachers and courses or whatever. Anybody he'd heard about me. So he asked me if I would uh, be willing to teach um, that. And actually, I was doing a lot of investing in companies at the time and running small, company, small companies and coaching CEOs. So it was sort of a natural and uh, so I started doing that. And then uh, the next thing that happened was they changed the curriculum here so that they had a bunch of the second year teachers teach a first year course. And so I started in on that and I've done that ever since. I teach two of them now because I just because I like first year. So yeah. I think it's fun to definitely break them in. <laughs> yeah. And I think your philosophy philosophy about getting people to make a noise is, um, you know, often simple things like that that appear like, oh, that's might be common sense or what's that going to matter is um, it's, it's all about creating that gateway or that, you know, getting people comfortable to take that first little, little step. And um, are there any, you know, favorite student success stories or just stories of students where you've got to teach them early on? And then obviously I'm sure there are many that got to go on, start their own business or become executives or VCs or whatever. Any favorites there? Well, there's tons of them. And so I always resist that because I'll leave out some. Sure. There's some fantastic people who've done phenomenal things that uh, I could sure learn a lot from. And I've stayed in touch with a lot of my students and I get probably a couple of emails a day from former students, sometimes with an issue that they're struggling with, often just to share life. Some updates. Yeah. So it's a fun, it's a rich experience. Is that what makes, you know, is that kind of like your big why? Um, I'm curious to know just like, you know, why are you doing it? You don't, you don't have to teach. You don't have to do these things. What's most rewarding about it for you? Yeah, it's not for the money, for sure. And uh, it's really not because, I mean, so a lot of the people here are scholars and it, it really is the subject matter, you know, and they are really world's experts in, and they're fascinated by whatever their subject matter is. For me, it's all about the students. You know, I, I love rubbing shoulders with these young people. I love potential. Sure. I love spotting potential. I love nurturing it. I love nudging it. To me, it's what's really fun. 
and I think that's, um, I mean, identifying potential before it's properly valued by the marketplace is the whole game that we're uh, kind of playing here. Uh, are there any maybe tips or advice you have for whether they're teachers or executives or CEOs that are trying to get better at identifying that talent in others earlier? I think there's a pattern recognition thing. You know, what I find is that people who win like to, they, they hate losing more than they like winning. And they just keep winning and you can put them in almost in. I had a partner at Crow one time that uh, I just felt like I could put him in any city in an up market or a down market or a sideways market. And he would figure out the creases. He would figure out how to win. Yeah. And so I think you spot people like that who just they kind of develop a track record. Sure. And uh, they tend to repeat it. Yeah. And I think, too, it's um, it's always exciting when you know you have a couple interactions with someone and you start to get that feeling, right? Where they're mm -hmm. not going to let you down. They're not going to let themselves mm -hmm. down. And uh, it's thrilling. And I can remember getting that feeling and first really experiencing it and being able to spot it in the military where uh, you're kind of, for better or worse, forced to size people up on basis of courage. And, you know, are they going to be there for you if you really need it? And when you study, you know, military strategy or history or anything like that, I'm not sure if you're a fan. Do you see many parallels with business? Do you see uh, lessons for there. Sure. Well, so it's interesting. We were talking before you came in about Stan McChrystal, uh, who uh, we were on a board together for seven years. And I remember somebody brought him to me and said, what do you think about him serving on the board? And I said, well, let me have dinner with him and we'll kind of figure it out. And he said, look, I don't really know anything about business. And uh, after about halfway through the dinner, I said, this guy knows everything you need to know. <laughs> and he's totally a leader. He understands human beings. He understands communication. He has great judgment. I mean, he has all the things that you need to be sure. fantastic. Yeah. And I think General McChrystal's experience is very interesting as well because he's uh, leading the special operations community, which is in the business world, I view it as... Um, this might come across wrong, but is almost an art form where it's very, very difficult to uh, get right. And many of the most talented people people are also the ones that, like artists, are you know battling yeah. their own their their own demons. So I think what's most impressive about General McChrystal's experience is that uh, he was able to transition our military from very con conventional force to much more of a special forces type yeah. uh, force, and. I mean, the reductions in like collateral damage and all those things are also things we need to be thinking about in business right now. There are many different stakeholders and I'm curious to get your take on where's the business world heading in terms of people thinking about profits and capital, uh, capital allocation is the, you know, is the future like the past? What changes do you see? So there is this move afoot to say that uh, business shouldn't be all about profits or all about stakeholders, shareholders, that, that you have this broad constituency and you need to think about them. I, I always think you do need to think more broadly about it. And you you have to basically always make sure that you're delighting or satisfying at least your customers, uh, your investors, and your team, you know, the internal employees. So those are the three constituencies that you've got to do. And I think that's just enlightened. I think a lot of what there that came out, I think it was the conference board or one of these kind of think tanky kinds of groups, uh, really had really expanded it way beyond that. And I think there's some issue around that. I think it's really hard to serve all these because a lot of this stuff gets really political and different yeah, people have definitely. points of view. And so I think ultimately, I don't have a big problem with being profitable for stakeholders, for shareholders. A lot of people s sort of feel like, well, 
these are the rich people. But if you really look at how companies are owned, mm-hmm. they're owned by 401ks. I mean, so, yeah. I mean, I think, I think it benefits everybody. And, um, and I think you have to be careful to Definitely. have too many. Yeah. I mean, many of these VC funds are made up of endowments and uh, they're doing great work in the world. And I think too, the number of different uh, business experiments that were running, there's some research from like the Kauffman Foundation and others that states that the formation of new ventures is kind of on the decline. Right. There's some talk of, you know, like I think the average small business owner, I think about 64% of them never make any profit or, or something like that. But at the same time though, we're in Silicon Valley and it looks and can feel very different for us. Are you worried about like the falling formation of new ventures or anything like that? Well, I think in general, you, you worry about it because it is where innovation comes. It's a lot easier for these small ventures to innovate because stuff gets buried in a big organization and it, it's, it really gets gummed up by bureaucracy a lot of times. In fact, JetBlue, we set up a thing called JetBlue Ventures and we moved it out here. So we're, our headquarters are Long Island I'm City. I'm the 101, right? I've, I yeah. think I've passed it a yeah. couple of times. Yeah. And uh, so it just, it's its own standalone thing. Now it works with our team, but it's, it's really the only way you can do it. And I think a lot of times corporate venture capital doesn't work because it's too tightly aligned with the, the hierarchy. Yeah. And, and that brings up a fascinating point. So just before this, I was, um, I try to read every day, I get some business lessons and I learned that Apple's first strategic investment fund invested in the company that was PowerPoint that eventually was acquired by Microsoft. Mm. And, um, there's some very, it worked out very well for them, but corporate venture obviously is very, very tough. At JetBlue, how did you go about setting that up and what type of case studies were you drawing on for that? So uh, we just knew that we had to continue to innovate. I mean, one part of the JetBlue brand is to be innovative and creative. And, you know, we were the first to put TV sets in the back of seats. First to make it nice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and we're yeah. nice. You know, people like us. Yeah. And free snacks and uh, and then free Wi-Fi. Yeah. That's fast. Yep. So there are a bunch of things that we've done. And we just started to say, you know, if we lose that, we'll lose what is the JetBlue experience. So how are we going to keep doing that? And we just said, you know, it's not going to, because I used to send deals back to Long Island City and they would die because nobody has time. They're busy making the rain, the trains run on time. Right. Yeah. So we had a board meeting out here and everybody saw kind of what is, goes on in Silicon Valley. And we had this amazing woman who was a three-time Olympian. She'd been a left seat captain at uh, United and just an amazing gal. And so we asked her if she would run it. She'd never been a venture capitalist, but she's the kind of woman you could just put in charge of anything and she'd make it happen. So she's actually really kind of, and I think we've made 25 or so investments. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Congrats on those. As you've made those investments, what type of tech and companies, are there any examples you could share of like, uh, maybe a company's path from investment to either acquisition or integration or closer partnership with JetBlue. What's that process like for some of your portfolios? So I'm not really sure. I'm not sure. close enough uh, to those. I know we've we've got uh, a couple that are in um, airline uh, support services. That can be maintenance. It can be travel products. It can be anything. And they're all percolating along and developing, but I don't know any of them specifically. Sure. During your time at uh, getting started at JetBlue, especially, what mentors did you have from outside the organization and how did you go about maybe building a coalition inside or starting to get, uh, did you bring a team in with you or how'd you go about building 
your, your trusted group of advisors no, there? So, uh, so I'm not an executive chairman. I'm the chairman of the board, which gotcha. really means that I kind of work with the board and with the senior management team more in a coaching way. I was brought on the board to build Terminal 5 at uh, JFK because I'd been a real estate developer and they didn't have anybody. And there was a bet the company uh, kind of a project. It was going to be a $750 million project and we were a startup airline. Wow. So it was a big deal. So my job was to get that building built and work with the folks there. And then there came a time when uh, it was just there was a need for somebody to step into the chairmanship role. And so I stepped into that. Uh, I've worked with our management team. Used to be that I had had a Saturday morning call every every Saturday with the CEO. And now I have it once, maybe twice a month. But I, so I've stayed close with the, so I work almost in a coaching way uh, with the CEO. And when it comes to coaching, are there any, um, yeah, again, any mentors or um, maybe favorite resources that, uh, you rely on or think back to, or maybe reread? Yeah. Well, I, you know, so I've had my own experience as a CEO. Uh, I've worked with a ton of really interesting ones here. So I'm, I'm learning all the time. I'm learning from my students. I'm learning from class visitors. Uh, so I rely on, on, uh, on all of that, but I, in terms of rereading books, uh, I'm reading all the time, but I, you know, it's funny. I, I don't always read business books. I think there's, for example, I'm reading Same. this one now uh, about Churchill. I think there's tons of lessons yeah. in there. It's, it's called Walking with Destiny. And I think it's so interesting. He had these uh, wilderness years. And one of the comments he made was something about what you think is the worst things happening to you in your life are probably the best. And many things that you think are the best are probably the worst. And I think that's a, a really man. important business lesson. Yeah. Is that sometimes organizations get much better and stronger going through really tough times. So um, they're, if not, they're not stress tested. Right. So you just exactly those organizations that aren't stress tested. You never know what's going to happen. There's a lot of talk, too, of, uh, you know, a correction coming and things of that nature. Is that something that for someone like you, is that I mean, I'm sure you've always heard of like the next recession, the next people are always running. The sky is falling. Do you even listen to that type of information anymore it's, or did, don't it's worry so about it. wrong it's always yeah. wrong and the timing is never right yeah and i think i think what you learn to do is margin off risk so you run your business carefully so you never get uh, too stressed out i think a lot of it particularly in today's world with i don't want to call it fake news but a lot of the news sources are just not tested and there's a lot of political reasons that people put out different things. So sure. There are some people for whom it's really in their interest to convince the world that we're really headed into a recession. For other people, it's really in their interest to say, man, things are totally booming. They'll never go back. And so people have an agenda. Right. And so, and, and I, so I, I look at a lot of the news as agenda driven. Definitely. Now. Anybody that says they don't have any bias or they're like, oh, we're the objective sources, like usually alarm bells go off because yeah. it's very hard to be objective. Are there any uh, tips that you have for CEOs that are maybe trying to like rise above the noise and stop, maybe stop listening to some of the quarterly type news and, and start focusing on the long term? I think you do look at the fundamentals. I mean, I think there's some really good books on that where you learn to be really a very fundamental thinker. Sure. There's one by Peter Zeehan. That is called uh, the accidental superpower okay, about yeah. America. It's fantastic. Yeah, you really see that we have just some some advantages that cannot be replicated or replicated anywhere yeah. in the world. 
And so you have to be really bullish on America. We're our own worst enemy. I agree. I could not agree more with that. Yeah. I mean, just in terms of this like brief experiment, American GDP, what, 15 trillion or something, and probably not going to slow down uh, in a matter of since 1776. I don't know of any other startup or country that's grown that. Like no, that. There's, there's no place like America even yeah. close. And then we have all these advantages too that he points out in terms of seaports, in terms of east-west, in terms of river movement, which is way more, way less expensive to uh, transport things by uh, river than any other way. And so we just have all these natural advantages to, and then we have this incredible uh, resource base, natural resource base, and a productive population. I mean, you should have things that nobody else. And frankly, until this last little while, we've had the most stable government that, you know. Agreed. And it's, um, especially when you travel outside the U.S., you take for granted how nice it is to have just people who don't scam you all the time in in government. And um, there's awesome books all over your bookshelf there. I see like the Rockefeller Habits, Measure What Matters. Um, Also, both of them are on my bookshelf. It's always tough to give advice uh, it's it's something that I struggle with personally, where sometimes you have somebody ask you for advice or a critique or feedback. And I'm someone who I kind of oscillate between, I know good advice when I hear it, but I also know that generally taking advice hasn't worked out well <laughs> in, the, in the past. So um, any advice there? Yeah. <laughs> with well, yeah. that lead in, I'm not going <laughs> to give you any advice. <laughs> no, I mean, I think, uh, I think there is a kind of a wisdom of the ages that uh, is good to listen to. Kind of like the Churchill stuff we were talking about, right? Yeah. yeah, where you like know it when you... Yeah, you just say, this is really wise. There was a fellow who was the um, editor of the National Review for Literature, or Saturday Review for Literature, I think. Uh, and I'm blocking on his name right now. But he said, wisdom is the ability to predict outcomes or to predict the future or something. And if you think about it, wise people have seen the movie enough times that they have a pretty good sense as to how it's going to turn out. And I think listening to that, listening to their points of view, you never adopt it totally, but sure, that's good input. Yeah. yeah. And um, you, so you have a large family and uh, I have children as well, one son, two twins on the way. Any lessons there where obviously business and performing at the highest levels can uh, put some divides between the family and there's always that push and pull of how much time, where, when, how have you maintained your life and kind of integrated everything? So I think, I think it's a lot more compatible than people think. I think there are some businesses, for example, consulting or banking, which get driven by clients that are really demanding or paying a lot of money and they have young people and they just work them to the bone. And so I think if you're at the early stages of one of those, the odds are you're going to spend a lot of long days and into the nights and whatever. But, mo- you know, apart from that, I actually think uh, running a family and running businesses are quite similar. I mean, it's pe- people want to be loved. They want to be appreciated. They want to be recognized. And I would say in raising kids, the best advice is be their cheerleader, not their policeman. That's great know? advice. And-, and I think it's that way with teams too. That's yeah. Really, really, really good advice. And, um, you mentioned seven children, right? Mm -hmm. Five girls, uh, two boys with that many children. One of the things I'm also struggling with, I'll just go go down that route here is, um, education, right? Education is something that's always been in flux. How did you balance kind of, maybe you had this urge, maybe you didn't to, uh, 
suggest books, to suggest resources versus letting their teachers kind of like lead the way? We always made sure that they knew that we were readers. My wife and I are both readers and we talk about books and, you know, we had a birthday party a few years ago for me and all the grandkids were there and they had a, somebody had a quiz for the grandkids to see what they know about grandpa. And one of the questions was, what's grandpa's favorite book? And 90% of the grandkids got it right. Wow. So it just shows that they they grew up with an awareness of books and that it's it's a cool to being a reader is a cool thing. That's uh, it's almost like getting a good NPS score back. <laughs> yeah, I'm yeah. Feeling the same, yeah. Feeling the same thing. And so what is the favorite book? Well, so mine, uh, the one that they all mentioned was uh, A Short History of Nearly Everything okay. by Bill, Bill Bryson. Bryson. Yeah. yeah. He's yeah. a fabulous writer and it's just a really interesting yeah, I um I love books with like a large scope there. You mentioned you were reading kind of outside the traditional business realm. Uh, I'm curious, do you read any fiction or are there any other categories of books that you're you found some wisdom in? Yeah, it's funny. I uh, fiction and science fiction have not been they, they just my kids love it. Yeah. And they can't understand why I don't. <laughs> but I I really would rather read books on anything else. Yeah, definitely. You know? I um I was the same way. And there, there's some uh, hard science fiction that is so based in actual research that yeah. is uh, it's pretty compelling for me just because a lot of these authors are writing about things that could be done now, but yeah. just aren't yet. Yeah. So, but outside of that, it's, uh, I kind of struggle with that as well. So when you're at Stanford, Stanford's a gorgeous, gorgeous place. GSB is probably the most famous business school in the world or one of them. And what are you doing when you're outside the classroom? Are you scheduling time to think? Are you taking walks? Are you talking with colleagues, students? So I've, I've got a, a cobbled career, which means I can't keep a job, <laughs> which means that I do a bunch of other things. So I'm also at the Hoover Institution. I was the chairman oh, there for three years, chairman of the board of uh, overseers. But it's great, great people there. I do these books. I, I, I'm working on one now that comes out in the spring and I just published, republished one here in the last couple of months. Um, republished mean adding some updates or yeah. uh, forward? Yeah. Okay. And yeah. which book is that? It's called The Ten Laws of Trust. Oh, okay. Very yeah. cool. Yeah. I'll check that out. Yeah. Uh, Amazon and everywhere? Yeah, it's everywhere. Okay. And then uh, I'm on a bunch of boards, so those take time. And then I've got a private equity business, a venture business real estate investment business. So all those things take time. And that means you have young people that work for you and you want to be available to them. And then I just find that students drop by and, uh, you know, you have to answer their questions for what they're paying here. You got to be available to them. <laughs> Definitely. With all of those things going on, for me, that sounds very exciting. And I love being able to switch between different pursuits or always incubating a bunch of side projects and things like that. Did you always have that capacity? Is that something where you got one thing really right and then added the next small uh, business pursuit? Because that's an impress impressive list of things. Well, that so, Yeah. So the first thing, uh, I mean, the first 18 years of my career were with one company and, uh, and it was, I, I always tell people I started at the top and worked my way down. <laughs> But I ha I just had a lot of uh, responsibility early on. And so I'd wake up first thing on my mind in the morning in the shower were issues and then I'd, I'd fall asleep thinking about issues. So I was kind of 24 seven and thank heavens I had this family because that broke the, the uh, trance. Yeah, definitely. Um, but then I think that 
I was lucky in that that got broken apart. And so I ended up with this gig here at Stanford. And then I started investing in companies. I started buying companies and that got me on boards. And then I started writing and then I started. So I just started picking things up as, a, you know, one thing led to another. Yeah. And I think that type of snowball effect is um, and compound interest and in anything of that nature is uh, feels daunting until it starts compounding. Yeah. And uh, with your experiences in business, you're writing books now, you're on boards. Are there any recent lessons that you know, you've learned that you think maybe our listeners need, or you'd like to share with us, uh, anyone listening. Yeah. Well, to me, uh, so I've been thinking a lot about trust because I do think we have a tri- crisis of trust in this uh, country. And if you don't believe so, just look at our Congress. They don't trust each other. They can't talk to each other. They don't solve problems. They waste time and energy and money and thing. And fundamentally, there are ways to factor analyze trust and figure out what allows us to trust another person. And at the most basic level, it is people deliver on promises. Mm-hmm. You know, if people don't disappoint, if they're what they say and what they do, there's no gap between it, then you can trust sure. that. And so uh, I basically say that fundamentally we trust people because of high character, because of competence, and because they have the authority or the power to deliver. They're empowered to make sense. And without all three of them, to trust is folly. It's not smart trust. So thinking about what is smart trust and then living the laws of trust, you know, which which one of the ones I put in, in this book is uh, fix breaches immediately. And if you think about the way we go through our lives, there are little disappointments we have every day and we disappoint people every day. If you don't fix them, they get worse. And they raise their head in uglier ways down the road. So you have to fix them immediately. Other ones are things like communicate lavishly. Communicate bad news as well as good news. Communicate before, during, and after events. So there's a bunch of things like that that you just can think about saying, I want to build a high trust life. That's the low stress life at the end of the day. Which at the is end, what, so, and yeah, stress you're, is what yeah, you're happier. You. Definitely. You're totally happier. And it, I mean, I think it gets back to wisdom too, like you're saying, where you know, if you're going to have the ability to, or if you're going to be bold enough to make promises, you're going to have to predict the future accurately. And that gets into scary territory for a lot of leaders because there's always going to be that gap between it's what makes numbers nice because you can hit your numbers and that's very objective. But outside of that, sometimes where leaders might envision a future, often when you get there, it looks different, right? And there's Mm going to be certain people that leave. There's going to be new people that join you. How have you handled in the past where you know, you've made a promise about what the future is. Maybe you hit the numbers, but the environment or the culture has changed and maybe you need to get it back or maybe you just need to, you know, tell the team that like, hey, this this vision didn't line up. We did hit the numbers, but things are going to be changing. Um, or, or you just don't, you fail. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can fail. So people, people will allow failure of results. They won't allow failure of character. Yeah. And they have a hard time on failure of effort. Definitely. Yeah. But you you can fail on results. And so one of the laws of trust is to show humility. And humility just means that you admit mistakes, you change course. We can't, we can't deliver on every promise we make, but we can certainly recognize when we're not. We can apologize. We can fix things. We can do, uh, reset our course. Uh, we can be transparent with people. And so you can build trust even through failure. Sure. But you've got to, you have to work at it because if you, if you allow it to build up, 
it's it gets just like worse that. and worse yeah. until you don't have any more opportunity to build trust. Definitely. If we could switch gears a little bit, I'd love to learn, you know, what was the greatest lesson that you learned from your parents? I think for me, it was uh, that they empowered me. You know, they, uh, they really trusted me. They believed in me. And because they believed in me, I couldn't let them down. I mean, it was just this incredible sense of, I don't want to ever let them down. So I became quite trustworthy. You know, I, I showed up on time for things. I got things done. I, you know, and that was a really, that was kind of muscle memory that yeah. became sort of who I was. Once you have muscle memory for a thing, it becomes much, much easier. <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, it's way easier. You don't have to one think of the best about things it every about day. The military. Yeah. yeah. And um, yeah, th- I thank you for sharing that. That's um, I, I'm assuming that was more cheerleading than policing. Like you mentioned. Exactly. Earlier. What about your children? Because I'm always learning things. The more I hang out with my son, the more I get to you know see his progress day by day, learning new words. It's thrilling. Uh, what have you learned from your children? That So I ha- I'll show you this book later on, but I have this book that my kids put together on my 60th birthday and they each wrote a letter to me. And uh, I was amazed at how many of these letters they noticed, they, they remarked about, you always showed up for my games. You were always there for my concert. Whenever I had to do something for a parent-teacher thing, you were there. And it really made an impression on it, which I didn't really think a lot about. Yeah. I kind of loved being with them when I could be, but they really paid a lot of attention to that. And knowing who their friends were, you know, that just made yeah. a big difference to them. Yeah. And thank you for sharing, by the way. This is uh, this is awesome. And uh, Joel, you've been really generous with your time. As you go about like the next planning phase, or if you're, you're considering new projects in the future, what's that thought process like for you? Because you have a lot of opportunities now you can pick and choose things. What type of filter are you applying uh, to things? How do you make decisions? So I was about to say, you know, at my age, you don't buy green bananas anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't believe it. Not if you're living a low stress life. So <laughs> lower stress. We, we had a guest in class the other day and she said uh, that she really believes in 24 month plans. She said, you know, people have five and 10 year plans, you know, they, they drop off because you can't think that far. He says in 24 months, you can kind of control it and make it happen. And things change enough. A year's a little too short. Yeah. Three year contracts yeah. a little scary. Two so years that, that sounds was interesting. Right. So yeah. I've got another book in me. I want to do that. And then I, I'm really trying to get my companies, my investment business passed off to others. And when you think about passing it off, so uh, we were fortunate to have uh, Sequoia Scouts invest in our angel round, which is all we've raised and we're profitable now. Uh, Founders Fund as well. They've been great partners. Um, is like the Sequoia stewardship model something you're, you know, drawing inspiration from? Is it another venture fund or are you working on a, d- a different type of uh, maybe passing it off type process? So uh, the passing off to me is basically to the young people in the organization. Sure. So I think there's sort of two levels of customers that we've got. One is our up and coming partners and our investors. You know, right. they have an equity stake and they're, and you want to make sure that that's a, a healthy ecosystem. To me though, the, the number one ecosystem that I care about is our entrepreneurs. And I've always said that we are about helping our entrepreneurs achieve their dreams. And if we can help them achieve their dreams, our investors will do just fine. 
our uh, partners, employees, whatever, will be just fine. So to me, it's it's all around that. Wise words. Joel, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, when your next book comes out, always welcome back. Good um, deal. Happy to promote and talk about it. Thank you so much. And everyone listening, we'll see you next time. Thanks. Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce, they're a customer times five, Twilio, and Katera, who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org slash studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.